Well, do stand with me as we arise this morning and come to our sermon text to read in Daniel chapter 7. If you have a Bible, you can turn there, and if you need one, it's always good to have a Bible open in front of you as we study God's Word. You can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be there in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 744. Uh, the chapter before us represents a significant shift in Daniel up until this point, and I trust even as I read just the first 18 verses of chapter 7, uh, you'll understand uh, something different is now taking place in Daniel's life and ministry. Uh, I trust that will become clear enough, uh, soon enough. So let me read the first 18 verses, although we'll get all the way through the end of the chapter in our sermon, and then I'll pray for God's blessing and we'll begin together. So here now, once again, as the Lord does speak to you through His perfect word. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion. And had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Then after this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads. Dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, and it devoured in broken pieces, and was stamped what was left with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold... There came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed. Its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a season of time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, his dominion. It is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious." The visions of my head alarmed me. 
I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning these things. He told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four beasts are four kings who arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Lord, we do ask this day that you would teach us your good judgment, that you would give us much knowledge. We look to you even now, hoping in your salvation, and so we ask that you would speak to us words of life, words of life that are found only in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I recently came home from the office with some surprise gifts for the children. And as I'm sure many of you can imagine, the next few minutes in the stone home were full of two three-word phrases bandied about in in our midst as the kids were crowding around the gifts. Uh, Many were asking, what is it? And then once the gift was revealed... Those who were crowding around but couldn't see what was revealed said, let me see, let me see. And what we have in our text today is apocalyptic language, it's revelatory imagery that has caused many Christians throughout the ages in being confused and confounded to ask, what is it? More than a number of you have come up to me this week basically asking that, what is it? that Daniel saw in chapter 7. And I trust that we can make it clear enough that we might be able to actually get to a point where we can crowd around the truth of the text today and say, let me see. Uh, Let me see. Because it is that vital and important for us that we see. After all, it's apocalyptic language that is meant to see. Four times in the text, Daniel says, I saw. Six times in the text, Daniel says, I looked. And it's thoroughly appropriate for us to think about this visionary quality that belongs to the chapter because apocalyptic genres in the scripture, it's all about what you see. It's all about even what you experience through the sight. That's why one pastor once called apocalyptic literature Literary shock treatment was the phrase that he used. And you might be sympathetic to what he means by that, because through these often macabre and mysterious and even majestic visions, what you get in apocalyptic texts in the Bible is oftentimes a vision, an image, a picture that confronts your conscience with unusual and particular power. It tends to have perhaps even unusual and particular power in alarming a heart and bringing attention to the mind. It's clear enough that this vision did exactly that for Daniel. If you look again at verse 15, he says, My spirit was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. The very final verse of the chapter finds him saying the same thing. Look at verse 28. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. And so what we get here in Daniel chapter 7 is that noticeable shift in the story. The the first six chapters were all ones of history. Uh, They're ones that tend to excite ordinary readers and students of the Bible. Uh, The final six chapters, the second half of Daniel, it's mostly all full of this kind of apocalyptic imagery. And they don't necessarily excite as much as they can easily exasperate Christians because you often come to it saying, Oh, what is it? 
that Daniel is talking about. And if you know your story of Daniel well, you know Daniel himself often asks, uh, what is it that I'm looking at? But there are a number of things that I want you to see from this passage today. And all you need to know when you get to the back half of Daniel is through these bizarre images, through these frankly even grotesque realities that he sees, what we are seeing just displayed through these mighty pictures is the same truth that Daniel's been communicating over and over. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. And there's one king that rules over them all. And it's that king that I want you to see today because the theme that I have for us to consider along the way in Daniel 7 is seeing the Son of Man. That's what you need to see. And I want you to see the Son of Man across five different things in the passage. So first, I want you to see the chaos. Notice again verse 1. We're told significantly in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream. These visions at night as he lay in his bed. So if you've been with us in recent weeks, what's happened is here in chapter 7, the tape of the story rewinds back to actually a time preceding what we saw in chapters 5 and 6 of Daniel. It's probably right for us to date this vision something like 50 years after Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare of chapter 2. And it's there that perhaps Daniel, as he's observing this first year reign of Belshazzar, a king that would prove to be altogether inept and incapable in his authority, maybe Daniel, as he was clearly near the king's court, started to wonder maybe about the security and the stability of God's exiles there in Babylon. We know it's clear from later chapters that he was eagerly reading Old Testament prophets that spoke about the security and the stability of God's people. And so he gets this vision that's going to help give him an idea of that stability, but it's actually chaos that he sees from the start. Look at verse 2 and 3. He says, I saw in my night vision, behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Uh, The four winds, it just pictures the universal reality of that chaos as winds from the north, south, uh, east, and west, whipping up the waves and and whipping up the winds. And and children, what what follows is Daniel seeing these beasts uh, that come up from the sea. And I would imagine if you were to have a dream like this, perhaps this week, it would be quite understandable that you might race into your parents' room and tell them that you just had a nightmare Because you'll notice the four beasts in Daniel's jungle book that follows, verse 4, tells us he first sees a lion. It tells us it has these wings that are soon plucked out. It's raised up on two feet like a man. The second beast, you'll notice in verse 5, it's a bear raised up on one side. In his mouth, he has a meal of three ribs, and he's given a command to devour much flesh. That passes now in verse 6 to the third beast, a leopard. Four wings like a bird, four heads, and then he gets to the fourth beast. And it's this fourth beast in verse 7 and 8 that in so many ways occupies Daniel's mind throughout this chapter. For look at what he sees in verse 7 and 8. He says, Behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong, it had great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different than all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. And as he was considering the horns, he says, verse 8, Behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were the eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great 
things. Now, he's soon enough going to get something of an angelic interpretation to this revelation, so we'll see that in the course of this chapter. But what you're meant to see is Daniel's piecing together these visions. Here from the outset is a scene of utter and total chaos. You you can picture it, can't you? There in the night as he's dreaming, he envisions this sea that swept up into all kind of turbulence. And in a successive fashion, these beasts rise. So oftentimes in the Old Testament, beasts were likened to the kingdoms of the earth. Ghastly and grotesque would they be. But you'll notice the fourth one, it's so tremendous, it's so exceedingly terrifying. Uh, that Daniel can't even call on an animal from the animal kingdom to describe that beast. There's this little horn that's poking out from the head, displacing three other horns inside of the eyes of a man. And it's, it's speaking great words, is what the text says. It's clear enough, I think, in context with this chapter. Blasphemies uttered out loud. See the chaos. Secondly, see the court. Because as suddenly as that scene arrives, it shifts to another place altogether. Look at verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed. The Ancient of Days took his seat. The first experience I ever had of sitting in a courtroom came many years ago when I was in, in middle school. Our school at the time had something that was called, you know, take your son or daughter to work day. In the previous year, I'd followed my dad around his office and rather than repeat that the following year I said hey can I follow Grandpa Stone around his workplace can I follow him about his daily duties because Grandpa was the head of the Dallas Forensic Crime Lab at the time and so I trusted that his duties would be much more fascinating to my mind than my father's IT department of the year prior and as as I was following Grandpa around early that morning it was around 10 a.m. that we went to a county courthouse because Grandpa was potentially going to have to testify in this case. So he sat me down in the back of the courtroom and went to do what he was meant to do that morning. And what struck me that morning was two things. As someone who had heard about courtrooms but never been in a courtroom, I was struck by how quiet it was. Somber and sober. And then I was struck also by how everyone was looking at the same place which was where the judge was seated. And when you come to this part of Daniel's vision, he comes to the heavenly courtroom. And it's true in this moment, there's somber, reverent, calm there in the courtroom. And all eyes are on the judge. For of course they would be. Look at verse 9 through 10 as it continues. His clothing, the ancient of days, was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. A chaotic scene of grotesque beasts from the sea immediately shifting to God's court is now in session. And everyone's staring at The judge. You notice children, it's using this language, Daniel is about 10,000 times 10,000. If we can say this somewhat reverently according to our time today, it would be as though Daniel looked around that heavenly courtroom and he said a bazillion people and angels were all around the ancient of days, full of bright white and flaming fire. Now throughout the Bible, those realities of white and fire, it's always associated with God's purity, 
is holiness, even fire associated with judgment. And so what you're meant to see right here from the outset of seeing the court is that while the world's kingdoms are nothing more than chaos, are nothing more than vengeance, are nothing more than sinful strength, well, you're summoned up to the heavenly courtroom above and everything is clean and everything is calm. It's probably quite important for Daniel to have seen this in this moment. You know, Daniel dared to stand alone so often in the kingdom of Babylon, and he realizes as he gets this scene of the heavenly courtroom above that he's not the only one that belongs to the Lord. Actually, people as far as his eye can see, they belong to the Lord too. And what is he realizing also, but that as the world would understand it, the power on earth was Babylon. But ultimate authority doesn't reside in Babylon. It it resides at the Father's throne in heaven. Just in the same way, students, I hope you realize that ultimate authority, of course, doesn't belong in Washington, D.C. today. Ultimate authority, it still belongs at God's throne around his footstool there in heaven. And the text tells us, you notice at the end of verse 10, these books were opened. uh, Books that the Bible would go on to say in a variety of different places would spell out the deeds of all peoples and kingdoms. Specifically, it seems as though the the court recorder there in heaven is reading off the deeds of the fourth beast. And those are deeds deserving of judgment. For look at verse 11 and 12. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed. Its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season. And a time, that enigmatic statement of timing at the end of verse 12, I think is simple enough for us to understand how human history has so often gone. You have these kingdoms rise and these kingdoms fall, and even though they have a period of worldwide dominance, invariably they seem to crumble and fall apart, although the kingdom continues to last, but no longer with its power, its strength, and its authority in the land. And it's clear enough, as the text will go on to say, that these beasts are no doubt kingdoms in the world. And what Daniel has just seen is this mighty fourth beast dispatched easily by the Ancient of Days. So that's the courtroom. Now see the coming. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. It's the center part of the text, uh, this coming of the son of man. It, It ought to be. In all of our attention today, the center part of our experience, you know, you you realize throughout life here on earth that arrivals, uh, they can tend to make significant shifts within your life. Uh, Perhaps some of you can recall that time when you were first a parent and you were expecting that first baby to arrive. And then the baby does arrive and everything changes. Uh, You expect the wedding day to arrive and it arrives and then what happens? Everything changes. You get an unexpected diagnosis of cancer. It arrives and everything changes. But what you have here in Daniel, in this apocalyptic scene, is the arrival that changes human history. It's the arrival that can change every one of your hearts, even today. I want you to notice a few things about this arrival. First, notice the description again of who is coming, there came one like a son of man. Uh, The original language would just read, there came one like a son of Adam. 
It's, it's speaking here about the true man, someone who is the image of God. It's speaking here about someone who obeyed faithfully, perfectly, all of the command and the commission that God gave to the first Adam. And so now this last Adam comes. And because of his perfection, he's able to stand confidently in his presentation before the Lord. And notice also the direction of the coming and the arrival. The end of verse 13 tells us he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. You know, it's a passage that has occupied so many Christians' conscience throughout uh, the eras, and for good reason, but so many have uh, so easily misunderstood the principal point of the passage because they don't realize that this isn't a coming from the ancient of days. It's a coming to the ancient of days. It's ascension language is what it's using here. And notice the dominion also given at the coming as the text continues, notice verse 14, he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. In so many ways, verse 13 and 14, that is the essential thesis of this entire book. There is a king whose kingdom will last, and it's only his kingdom that will reign forever. So you notice, we don't get a name. We just get a simple description, don't we? It's not even properly at this point in biblical revelation, a title. It's just, there came one like a son of man. Now, kids, we we don't get a name, but we know his name, don't we? Uh, Because who is the image of the invisible God? Who is the true man who perfectly and obediently obeyed everything that Adam failed to do? Who does scripture call the last Adam? Who, even as he was ascending to the Father's right hand, cried out to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth, it belongs to me. There's a vision David has, or Daniel has, about the coming Jesus Christ. But as the text continues, it shifts from the revelation to the interpretation, which brings the fourth thing I want to show you, which is I want you to see the clarity. Look at Daniel, verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I'm sure that many of you would agree and sympathize with Daniel's experience in this moment. You know, you you can be here on the Lord's Day, can't you, in God's house, which is a place of revelation. It's a place of of a vision even of the Son of Man seated at God's right hand as he ministers to us through his word and spirit. You can get that vision. Uh, You can then walk away still quite anxious, still quite troubled by the things confronting you in the world. And so much like what happens with the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, Daniel now goes from not just being an observer of the vision, but to a participant in the vision. As he asks someone standing next to him, probably an angel, we don't know for sure, to explain what he just saw. And look at the simplicity of the explanation in verse 17 and 18. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Daniel, all you need to know, four kingdoms are coming. They're going to pass from one next to the other. There's one kingdom that will remain. 
And again, some of you can probably sympathize with Daniel. As the text continues, his response is very much, yeah, but what about that fourth thing? What about that little horn? I know Jesus is on the throne. I know that his kingdom is going to last, but what about that fourth beast over there? Well, the fourth beast, of course, is getting additional detail provided. If you notice verse 20, it has a mouth that spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. He says in verse 21, significantly, it's a horn that made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the judgment time at the ancient of days courtroom. So the interpreter provides clarity with the interpretation, verse 23 through 25. He says this, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. And as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So you hear that interpretation. And do you feel, hmm, that makes sense now. Simple enough, isn't it? Well, it is actually more simple than you might think. And you have to compare Scripture with Scripture to understand some of that simplicity and clarity. We have Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare in Daniel chapter 2, speaking about four kingdoms that pass away because there's one kingdom that rules them all. You have Daniel's dream in Daniel chapter 7 that speaks of four kingdoms that pass away because there's one kingdom that alone will stand. Perhaps then there's some sort of correspondence meant to be had between what Daniel interpreted in Daniel 2 and what we have here in Daniel chapter 7. And if you're with us several weeks ago when we walked through Daniel chapter 2, you might remember that you get this mighty statue in four different parts of materials, which we understood to be nothing more than Daniel telling Nebuchadnezzar in that moment, the kingdom of Babylon would pass to the Medes and the Persians, which would then go to Greece, which would then give way to Rome, and a stone that was not cut by human hands, it would come and crush the kingdoms of the earth. And it's quite actually clear in my mind that this first beast, the lion, with these plucked wings and its pride and made to know the Lord's humbling power is nothing more than just another way of speaking about Babylon. So I think the fourth beast here speaks about Rome. Now, it's true that throughout Christian interpretation in history, many people have seen the, the, the fourth beast, particularly this tenth uh, little horn, you know, it's basically Antiochus Epiphanes, which is a figure that belonged to Jewish thinking in the years before Christ, this abomination of desolation that so desecrated the temple. Many of the earliest Protestants just understood the fourth beast to be the Roman papacy. It's many people in the last 150 years that say the fourth beast is altogether future, and this little horn is nothing more than the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition that's going to rise at the end of time before Jesus returns. But it's not just Daniel chapter 2, I think, that helps us understand this reality. If you were to turn there later today, you don't need to do it now, and, and turn to Revelation chapter 13, uh, another apocalyptic section. Uh, in my mind, it so clearly speaks about Rome there in the first century. And what you would find at the beginning of Revelation chapter 13 is, guess what? A beast arising from the sea that looks like a lion, a leopard, and a bear with ten horns, speaking blasphemies 
from his lord, the dragon, who's none other than Satan. So I think what you have here is basically, yet again, Daniel receiving in perhaps a, a difficult way to understand nothing more than one kingdom is going to pass to another when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in that era of Roman reign and empire. He's actually going to crush it, such as his work, such as his ministry, even though it's not going to be apparent to all at the time that Rome's power has come to an end, hence the language, I think, used at the end of verse 25. But nevertheless, I think all it is is just an echo, this reality with the fourth beast of, of surely what's going to come at the end of the age with uh, the man of sin. Uh, the angelic interpreter says, this is what's most important, though, Daniel. Because I confess to you, I don't really care a whole lot about identifying the beasts. I think that's actually the burden of the text. Uh, it doesn't even try to identify the beast, does it? What's most important is the interpretation again, verse 26 and 27. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end, and the kingdom, the dominion, the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Again, you might have sympathy with Daniel. All of this comfort meant to surround him in that moment. All of that encouragement to endurance in the face of worldly and beastly opposition. Because the Son of Man is coming. And his kingdom will defeat all others. You see, Daniel's response is actually far from that, isn't it? Again, verse 28, as for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. It's quite true, isn't it, that so often we can become so fixated on the worldly realities of beastly kingdoms here on earth that we lose sight of the one who reigns over all, who, who judges all, and so therefore alarm, anxiety, worry, and doubt only continue in our hearts because we've taken our eyes off seeing the Son of Man. So you need to see that chaos, that courtroom, or that coming, and that clarity. Let's end now with some thoughts about the Christ. It was a little over five years ago, I was in Scotland for an extended amount of time there to do some archival research for an academic project. And what that meant was, when I was in this lovely country, and a lovely part of the year to be visiting the country, all I was doing for nine or ten hours a day was seated in the special archive section of Edinburgh Theological Seminary. And it's a place where special ancient documents come out and you can handle them there. It's, it's encased by glass, so it's very much like you're sitting in a glass jail uh, all, all week long. And what you would do is you'd ask the librarian, hey, can I see book, I'm sorry, can I see box one? And you would just go one box at a time through these ancient uh, and very much fragile documents studying this particular figure. And so they bring one box after the other. And I sat there for hours and hours throughout the time there in Scotland trying to discern if there was something unique about my subject that had not been discovered before because that's mostly what academics do. They try to find out something that's different than what someone has said before. And so I was reading all of these letters 
uh, many of which were rather undecipherable or indecipherable because the handwriting was so slanted and was so different from almost 200 years ago that it was difficult to see. And eventually I stumbled my way, really, uh, across this letter. That in that moment of reading it, I leaned back in my chair and I thought, I got it. A key. Something that no one had seen before about this particular individual. And I tell you that because here in Daniel 7, what you get, and I mean this in the greatest way possible, you have a key to so many things that makes so many things now make sense. And I want to show you three of those as we close about Jesus Christ. First of which is Jesus Christ is the key to human history. He's the key to human history. Now, you know as well as I do, don't you, what is the story of humanity but one of kingdoms rising and falling, one of turmoil and turbulence, wars and hardships, one reign passing to another, and yet God's church continues to grow. God's church continues to thrive. God's church continues to advance. Be not surprised when you look out upon the world today and say, what's going on? Saints throughout the ages have looked out upon the world of their time and said, what's going on? All this evil, all this sin, all this corruption, all this injustice. And yet the church and the kingdom continues to advance. Uh, There are so many in our time, uh, aren't there, that are concerned with being on the right side of history. Certainly concerned with not being on the wrong side uh, of history. And the text tells us that you can be on the right side or the wrong side of history. The right side is if you belong with those saints innumerably mentioned there in heaven. That's the right side of history for those who look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. The wrong side as those who belong to the kingdoms of this world in their unbelief and unrepentance. The sentence of judgment that fell upon the fourth beast in Daniel's vision is no doubt the same sentence of judgment that falls upon all people who don't understand Jesus Christ. So he's the key to human history. Uh, I want you to see also how the Son of Man title is the key to Jesus' self-identity. If you wanted to do a simple study of that title in the New Testament, particularly the four Gospels, Son of Man, you'll figure out it shows up something like 50 or 51 times in the Gospel narratives. And there's only one person that refers to Jesus as the Son of Man. And it's Jesus himself. It's as though what he's saying to that original audience, what you need to know most about me is what you already know about Daniel chapter 7. That a son of man, the true man, he's going to ascend to the Father's right hand in heaven and he is the king whose kingdom will know no end. It's why, of course, when he gets that night of his betrayal and he's standing before the Sanhedrin as they're falsely accusing him, they bring these false witnesses, they falsely declare that he's guilty, he's worthy of execution. Caiaphas uh, looks at Jesus and says, Are you the Son of the Most High, the Blessed? He says, Yes. And if you know the text well, in Mark chapter 14, verse 62, he says this, Yes, and you will see the Son of Man. You In your generation, first century, you will see the Son of Man coming with clouds to sit down at the Father's right hand on high. Because this Son of Man, His kingdom is going to advance through a servant, a suffering servant being crucified. 
So it's the key even to his self-identity. And lastly, I want you to see that Jesus Christ is, is also, I think we can say this, can't we? Uh, the true to our present security and our future victory. Our present security and our future victory. You know, it's really astonishing when you think about it, how this title, the Son of Man, so dominates Jesus' self-perception in the Gospels, when in reality here in Daniel, that title is only mentioned once in verse 13. So much of the interpretation doesn't even refer to the Son of Man. But if you notice again, uh, what we're told at the end of the passage in verse 27, the very kingdom that belongs to the Son of Man, who does it belong to? It shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. For those who identify with the Son of Man, they get everything that He gets. Does it not give you some sense of of present security today. That if you belong to this Son of Man, Jesus Christ, everything that belongs to Him, it's yours too. Does it not give you hope in future victory, knowing that as He has defeated sin, Satan, and death once and for all, you too will know the victory over sin, Satan, and death once and for all. So it was somewhere in Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus was speaking to His disciples in and around Caesarea. And you might remember the conversation. He looks at them and says, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, well, some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. You know, some say a great prophet that has arisen. And then, then he takes that question, doesn't he? And he just looks at them ever directly and in their eyes. Yes, but who do you say that I am? It's a text that asks the very same question of you. Who do you say that Jesus is? May you see that he is the Son of Man, crucified, buried, risen, ascended to the Father's right hand in heaven, therefore ruling over us even now. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice that you have shown us yet again in the kindness of your grace and the clarity of your word that Jesus Christ is our King and that his kingdom alone will reign forever and ever. Help us, we pray, by your Spirit to be found in this King, to be found also in his kingdom. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.